Who do you give your ultimate allegiance to? And are you willing to remain true to this allegiance even when everyone around you bows to another god? Let's join Dave Wurtson as he begins our study of Daniel chapter 3, showing us how we could face this choice on a business trip or even on the university campus. Mary and I both and our families of origin had the privilege of having dads that loved Jesus. And so I remember as a little tiny kid being in my living room, maybe after dinner, maybe just before I went to bed about 7.30 or so when I was just a little bitty kid. My dad and mom would gather us together in the living room. You can have the holy place, the sanctuary in your home. One of the things we want to do is to equip every one of you dads in how to disciple your kids and how to bring the Word of God to bear upon your kids. One of the most powerful ways to do that is to act out the story. So we're going to do that. We're going to pretend we're going to take you back to the plains of Dura. We don't know exactly where they are, but in Daniel 2, we're introduced to this gigantic plain. And Nebuchadnezzar the king, last week we learned that Nebuchadnezzar the king was the, in the statue, he was the... Head of gold, that's right. In Daniel chapter 3, he decides, like many megalomaniacs, I'm going to be the whole statue. So this morning we need to have a Nebuchadnezzar. Steve, come on up. Steve Fletcher, you're going to be Nebuchadnezzar. Come on up here, Steve, and we'll get your throne here. Here's King Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody say, Hail Nebuchadnezzar. We need to have his queen. Come on up here, Julie. Everybody has to have a queen. Come on up here, Julie. There's Nebuchadnezzar's queen. And be thankful we're not doing the book of Esther because his queen got knocked out. But this is years earlier, okay? I need some of the kids to come on up here. Or some of the younger kids, come on up here. You stand on either side of the king and queen. When the ancient Near East, what do they do with the king and queen? They got to keep them cool. So you need to keep them cool. You're going to be the ones that are waving. You pretend like you're waving these big palm branches and everything, keeping them cool. All right. Yeah, you can gather all around them, Okay. All right, we need some wise men. Gary, Ron, you come on up and you be the wise men. Buddy, Kim, come on up. You're the wise men. Good. Come on, Ron. Now, I told the orchestra to just stay up there. Now, you got to imagine you're going to all be all the rulers of Babylon. Some of you have always wanted to be the officials in the kingdom. You are the satraps and the governors and the judges and the ministers and right down to the local sheriffs, okay? So I want all of you to stand up, because Nebuchadnezzar said that all of them are to stand up. I'm going to be the karutz. That's the word for preacher, of course. I'm going to be the preacher. And this is the herald, the herald in Daniel 3. Thousands of Nebuchadnezzar's lords from all over, all the way from modern-day Turkey to the Hindus Valley, have gathered together, like in this gigantic open area. Right up here behind Kim is a 90-foot-tall statue. It is 90 feet. You know, that's like 10 stories high, so you can imagine. It's only 9 feet wide. So those of you that are in construction, that's not a very stable thing. So it might be that we've got a great big base with a statue of Bell, who's in the form of probably Nebuchadnezzar. As you look at this big plane, there's this 90-foot statue. The Colossus is a little bit taller than that in Greece on roads. So just so you have an idea, this isn't just pretend. In the ancient world, they built gigantic statues like this. The Colossus of Rhodes is actually several feet taller than Nebuchadnezzar's statue. But at this time, 
in Daniel's day, probably about 586 when the temple was destroyed or thereabouts. This was one of the largest statues that had ever been built. The command went forward. They unveiled this great big statue. It's gleaming in the sunshine. And Nebuchadnezzar's herald cries out, when you hear the orchestra begin to play, and we've got the string instruments, we've got not too many pipes, but Josh will get some pipes going. In fact, they've got Greek instruments and Persian instruments. They even call this whole thing. So this is our ancient Babylonian symphony. And this is the command. You're the lords of Persia. I mean, of Babylon. And there's Persians that are there, Medes and Persians that are now under the domination. They haven't come to rule yet. So we've got all different nationalities, all different groups. But Nebuchadnezzar hollers out, when you hear through his preacher, when you hear the orchestra, everyone's to bow down to the image, okay? So you're in your living room with your kids. We're going to act that out. We're actually there on the plane to Dura. Remember, you're just acting this out. It's drama. <laughs> and you're going to be the lords of Babylon, okay? So the herald cries out, when you hear the instruments play, I want all of you to bow before Nebuchadnezzar's instruments. Orchestra, play. Everybody bow down to the image. Everybody bow down to the image. Okay. Now, I want you to notice something. All of you that are sitting down, you are a very compliant group. How many of you felt conflicted? Orchestra, that's enough. <laughs> no, I'm not, thank you. Let's give them a hand. I want you to notice something. This is what you experienced back in about 586 or so in Babylon. And I want you to think about something. Everyone has bowed down. Some of the kids can tell me what's happening. How do they know that three guys are not bowing down? Somebody is doing what I did in my family devotions during prayer time a lot. What is it, kids? What do you do sometimes when you're supposed to have your eyes closed? You? Somebody is peeking. How in the world did they know that these three guys were standing up? You see, they're not really bowing in their hearts to Nebuchadnezzar either. There's a touch of rebellion, but it's a powerful story. How many of you felt a little bit conflicted? In fact, I'm amazing how obedient you are. To be honest with you, I've done this several times with like maybe 800 teenagers at a pop. For several years, people did what you did, and I understand why you did it. I told you it's just drama. But I've had audience of teenagers where I said, this is drama. You're just acting on a part. Your part is to play the role of the Babylonian Lord. And I had some big football players and they crossed their arms, and they looked at me and said, David, you can tell us to sit down all you want, but we're standing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because even pretend, we're not bowing down. And what I said to those kids is, you know, it's easy at church or at Maranatha Bible Camp or at Word of Life or at Maranatha in Michigan or at Clydehurst. It's easy to stay standing, but what we want to wrestle with today is how do you stand when all the pressure is on? How do you stand in your middle school? How do you stand in your high school? How do you stand in your job? How do you stand when you're on a board, when everyone is following a different way? How do you stand when you're a member of a cement company and they have a big party and people start telling illicit jokes? How do you stand and honor the Lord? 
What we want to learn is I had these three guys that say standing. They represent Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 3. You guys can be seated. And let's look and see why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did stand. And we begin with everything being set up. We have Nebuchadnezzar in verses 1 through 7. He's commanding absolute loyalty. It's an incredible story. And that's the way my dad, in our family devotions, family devotions weren't boring when we were acting things out. And that'll help you. It helped me as a kid to feel what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were feeling. The chapter starts out. It says in chapter 3, verse 1, the king Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. Set it up in the plains of Dur in the province of Babylon. You've got all that. He summoned all of his satraps and prefects and governors. Those are all of his lords. And all the other provincial officials that come to the dedication of the image he had set up. I want you to notice that he repeats every name. Now, in Aramaic and in Hebrew, this is written in Aramaic, but one of the techniques that they use, and it's hard for you to get it, the first time you hear this list, the way it was originally written, you go, oh, yeah, you're ticking off all these lords, and and you're heaping up authority figures. And authority figures are supposed to be people that take responsibility. Government officials are supposed to be people that can make independent decisions. And one of the things that Daniel does in this chapter is that he moves you towards seeing that these officials are like puppets. God's children never act like puppets. And by repeating several times in these chapters... By the last time, you, you just feel, and even the sound of it is like it's an automaton. We go through this list of the supposed leaders throughout the whole empire, but not one of them has the courage to stand up and to think for themselves. You live in a culture where often, just like ancient Babylon, you're asked to do certain things. And everybody in the crowd does those things. And the pressure's on. And one of the things that the Lord wants to teach you in this chapter is that his children are princes and princesses, not of Nebuchadnezzar. Their ultimate authority is to the living God. And they're going to make an absolute decision. Like Nebuchadnezzar is going to cross a line in the next few verses. I want you to listen to the line that he crosses. Nebuchadnezzar builds this big image. And then it says in verse 4, Then all the herald, the herald loudly proclaimed, just like you were experiencing, this is what you're commanded to do, all peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, a symphony of music, you must all bow down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, and repeats all the instruments, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, what line did Nebuchadnezzar cross? At the end of last chapter, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were appointed as being some of his officials. Daniel is the head of the wise men. As the chosen people of God, looking forward to the Messiah, we learned last week about the stone cut out without hands. 
Here's four guys living in a secular world kingdom. Not just secular. It is polytheist. It is idolatrous. The Lord, the true God of heaven, doesn't call his people not to live out there in the world. Like one of the approaches I could teach you is we're going to all withdraw from everything and we're going to set up our own little community and we will be a light to the world by isolating ourselves. The book of Daniel says no. The book of Daniel pictures his people dispersed. And in the New Testament, we're all dispersed. We are told to go into all the world. As we go, we are to be making disciples everywhere. So you're wrestling with the problem that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the question that they're wrestling with. Where Daniel is in this chapter, you'll have to ask him when we get to heaven. I know that he didn't bow because of what he does in chapter 6. Maybe he was over in Israel trying to help his people as a Babylonian official after the temple was destroyed. We can ask him when we get to heaven. It's one of those silent things in God's word. I don't know where Daniel was. Maybe he was high enough in the kingdom that he didn't have to come to this gathering. I don't know. But this chapter focuses for the last time in the book on Daniel's three friends. And what I love about these guys is that they're introduced in this gigantic throng of people. And the king of the world says, all of you are to bow down and worship my God. In essence, you're to totally obedient to me, and God's children say no. Things I want to be crystal clear from the smallest child in this room to the oldest adult. You need to have an ultimate loyalty to who? Your ultimate loyalty is only to God. In fact, if you're going to be a good American... One of the marvelous things in the founding of our nation is that they separated what Nebuchadnezzar has joined together. In what Nebuchadnezzar is doing, the power of the state is united with the power of religion. You see that? Part of what he's doing is Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to find out in the next chapter, he's afraid. Every human being, every political power, Hitler, Stalin, Khrushchev, end of the modern world, the dictator that rules Korea, every totalitarian state is afraid because we learn from the image. Remember, the image is partly strong and partly weak, and it's hard to get people to unite. It's hard to get our church family to unite. Because we're a mixture. We are different. What holds us together needs to be the power of the Spirit. But if you don't have the power of the Spirit, you try to use other forces. And one of the forces down through history that governments use is that you unite people's spiritual loyalties with their political loyalties. And one of the things I want to teach you, you need to keep those separate. Your ultimate loyalty is to the living God. And when the government asks you to declare ultimate loyalty, or a school teacher, or a professor at university, or any business you're involved in, when they ask you to declare allegiance higher than your commitment to the living God as a believer, you don't do a sit-in You're not rebellious. 
You're not angry. One of the things that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego teaches and Daniel teaches is that as believers and followers of the true God, we're not rebellious. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't create an attack against Nebuchadnezzar. What they did do is they just stood. And that's what I want to teach you to do this morning. I want you to learn that you understand my deepest commitment, my deepest loyalty is to the living God. And so when the king crossed over the line and told Israelites, your ultimate allegiance needs to be to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and to Baal his God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we've already decided that decision. Now, when you decide a decision like that, you need to understand that you're going to be attacked. Like if you're a football player, and you decide that I'm not going to run with all the rest of the guys when they're telling dirty jokes, and when they go out and get drunk after the game on Friday night, and when they do immoral things, if you decide, no, I'm going to be a really good ball player, and I'm going to play really skillfully, I'm going to lift weights harder than they do, I'm going to run harder than they do, but my ultimate allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the one that gave me the legs and gave me the heart and gave me the strength and gave me the spirit, the fun of being able to play. And because I love him so much, I never compromise my commitment to him. And I'm not obnoxious about it. Like in my own life, when I played ball in the public school, I did all kinds of things with my friends. There was all kinds of fun things that we could do that was absolutely no compromise at all. But there were certain things that would cross my allegiance line. And what I found out is that at first, when you live with unbelieving guys and you girls will find the same thing, when you live with unbelieving people, whether it's in business or in athletics, at first they really tease you. Or in the military, they really tease you. But then they respect you. And then when they're in trouble, they come to you. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are modeling the kinds of beautiful understanding of commitment. But they also are very realistic. If you decide, I'm not going to bow, the very first opposition you're going to face is from some people that want to get you. And so look at the next thing. We have some tattletales. In fact, the word that's used for these guys is there are guys, these are the accusers, but it uses a word that actually means to chew on somebody. They bite you. Has anybody ever been bitten by somebody because of their commitment to Jesus? A lot of you could give testimony. Look what these guys do. It says at this time, some of the astrologers, those are the diviners. Those are the ones that are supposed to be able to tell the future. Those are the ones I talked about that are involved in the occult. They also have a mixture of science and the occult. They come forward and they denounce the Jews. Here we have anti-Semiticism. In the Old Testament, the Jews, and still today, God isn't. As I was coming to church this morning, someone was on the public NPR And they were talking about that everything that's real is what is beyond your humanity. Anything that has a beginning and has an end, that's what's real. But they were not talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As the program went on, they were preaching what's ultimately real is force and energy and light. That's idolatry. Because we've learned that our God created the light. 
So right here we have in the modern culture, it wasn't just something that happened 600 years before Jesus, but as I was coming to church this morning to sing with you and to praise the Lord God of heaven, I had somebody preaching to me over the radio because I hadn't changed the station yet from listening last night. They were preaching to me exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was preaching to me. You need to worship the powers. You need to worship the cosmic forces. It's the stars. It's energy that ultimately control us. And you need to deny your personal individuality. And your decisions aren't that important. So the same powers that were evident in the ancient world are evident today. When you stand for the true God, you'll have accusers. So these guys come forth. And notice how they use very serious cunning. They begin with, O king, live forever. They're buttering him up. You have issued a decree. Notice their appeal to Nebuchadnezzar's pride. You've issued a decree, O king, that everyone that hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the scither, the lyre, we repeat all the instruments again, they're to fall down and worship, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing fire. But there are some Jews, anti-Semiticism again, There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice the jealousy. You put them in higher positions. They pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Nebuchadnezzar gives them another chance. What's going on here? Your enemies in school, in the marketplace, every one of you are going to meet these astrologers. And we learned a little. Ariok did it a little bit last time we were together. He knows how to appeal to a king's pride. In chapter 3, that cunning is elevated much hotter. There are people that appeal to a leader's pride. And they know how to say the sweet things. I also want you to know that weak leaders, whether you're a husband, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a coach, whether you're a town official, whether you're a police officer, weak leaders, when they're blocked, when their commands are not obeyed, and they find out about it, when they are blocked, they become furious. Have you noticed that about Nebuchadnezzar? One of the things I want every one of you in this room to be doing as we study this book, you need to be asking yourself, do I have the characteristics of a Daniel? Do I have the characteristic of a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? When you don't get your own way, every one of you, when you don't get your own way and you're blocked, How do you react? Some of you react and blow your temper. You become furious with rage. And Nebuchadnezzar, that's what he does. He did that when the dream was not answered. Everything is extreme. And this is very serious. Some of you husbands are Nebuchadnezzars in your home. If your wife disagrees with you, there's no dialogue. There's no reasonable talking. Because you're scared. And you're like Nebuchadnezzar. You're afraid about the future. 
You're trying to get everybody to listen to you like if you're a person wife. Some of you wives are controlling. It has to be your way. The way that the bathroom is set up, everything is in order. And if your husband doesn't put his hairbrush in the place where his brush is supposed to be, you become furious. That's Nebuchadnezzar. And that's where it gets down to interpersonal relations. Every one of us need to think through. These stories were given to us as an example. And most of us don't get to play our megalomania out on a world stage. Nebuchadnezzar does. But the factors of ruling by control, ruling by power, ruling by just raw authority, every one of us, wrestle with those temptations. For example, in 35 years in my own life in Midlothian Bible Church, sometimes the body of Christ has chosen what wasn't my desire. And it's easy for me to get angry when decisions don't go my way. How many of you have ever had that happen? And you become full of anger, and as members of the body of Christ, what we do is we spiritualize it, and we withdraw. And one of the marvelous things that I want to bless in our own church family is that for years, I've seen the power of the Spirit to help people not to do that. And as your pastor... I don't want you to miss out because you become full of rage. And when I'm filled with rage, my next thought is, I'm going to leave. And we all piously sit here, but that's a real struggle in my life and in your life. And I want to pray that none of you will be like Nebuchadnezzar. That because you're blocked, you become full of with rage because you haven't gotten your own way. Instead, we're all focused not on some great big image, are we? We're all focused on the living, holy God. And that's what's held us together as a church family. Our leader is not some Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not the leader here. You say, Dave, how did things happen here? There's Jesus as the head of our family. His spirit lives in us. His spirit has told us that we need to choose wise daddies, elders, wise big brothers. Then we all are adult children. So in the book of Acts and all the way through the epistles, we read about fellow believers interacting together and praying together. And then we read about the family uniting. And we make decisions. And then we keep plowing ahead in ministry. And that's what I sense the wind of the Holy Spirit is doing in our midst. But I love every one of you, and I know that I've got some Nebuchadnezzar in me. And when I'm blocked, and when things don't go my own way, which is what these slanders, you say, Dave, what do I do when somebody says something that's negative, something that's evil? 
in their sample. They don't even think it is, but they say, well, you know, this is what's happened. You know what, you know what I say? If it had to do with someone else, I, I just take the person and say, let's go and talk to them. Every decision you guys are in, in your family, did you know what so-and-so was doing? You go, no, let's go and talk to them. And you know what happens? I find it just stops my anger. And this is a beautiful thing that you've done for years, and I want to keep blessing you and helping you to do it, is that we keep sharing, we keep talking, and we keep being powerfully involved in all the new things that the Holy Spirit wants us to do. Because our ultimate allegiance is in the next paragraph. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have an incredible statement that they said to this king that wants to get them to bow down to him. Look what they say. I love their response. This is one of the greatest passages of the Bible. Look at it. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, so they're respectful, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. Now, what they're saying is, they're saying, we don't need to have a big court case. This is not a big decision-making time for us. Underneath the service, they're saying, you can play the orchestra all that you want, but we've already decided this. And this is something I want to challenge every one of you to do. Before the crowd pressure is put on, you need to already nail down what your commitments are going to be. It's too late when you're in the crowd. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in chapter 1, with Daniel decided, we will not defile ourselves. We will not defile ourselves. They decided in Daniel 1, we're going to do that. And what they're telling Nebuchadnezzar is, we don't have any court case that needs to be carried out. And then they say this. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God that we serve is able to save us. And he will rescue us from the hand of the king. So what is nailed down by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is this. There is a living God. We know that he is there. And we know that he has the power to deliver us. Amen? Now, this is a big command. I want you to pray for me. Do I really believe that? In other words, if I really was on a plane, Abdurah, and Nebuchadnezzar cranks up my wood-burning stove. I have a wood-burning stove in my house. And so I can extrapolate that and make it bigger. You know, make it big enough to get three guys in there that ends up with four. I can picture that. And it does crank up about 1,000 degrees. And, man, when it's 1,000 degrees and I open it up to put another log in there, man, it's scary. I've looked at the kilns at Ashgrove, TXI. I've seen the big melter of cars that Chaparral steal. You got the picture here? What I've been thinking about all week is I think about you and thinking about teaching you. What about that? It's easy to think about it until you're actually there. And boy, what I want to pray is that I'll believe there's a God. One of the things I want you to know, like a lot of the Old Testament scholars that I read, this is just a legend because this has all the characteristics of a court legend. It has a wicked king. It has three young foreigners that are, are attacked and put under pressure. You have them rescued. So if you're in a college classroom, they're going to tell you it's just a legend. Well, if it was just a legend, then why are we talking about it today? And why for the last, ever since 600 B.C., 
Why is it that men and women of faith have actually faced real Nebuchadnezzars and Antiochus Epiphanes and Herod the Great and the Caesars, and you go to the catacombs, you have a family heritage that believed this wasn't just a legend. And that's a big decision in your life today. I want you to know I'm a committed supernaturalist. I believe that there's a God in heaven that you can put guys in a flame, and if my God says you're going to make it, you're going to make it. How many of you join me in that faith? That's a big dividing line. Some of the most brilliant scholars that I've learned from all of my life don't believe that. They believe that if you were on the plains of Dura that day, nothing would have happened. It's just a marvelous, poetic story. There's a powerful movement in our culture today, even among my friends, that it's all about the story. And I want to tell you, have I told you a pretty good story today? My own granddaughter would say, hey, Papa, this is a great story. So I want you to know I'm totally committed. I think God tells really great stories, but I want to tell you something different about his story. His stories, unlike C.S. Lewis's story, Prince Caspian, my God's stories, what C.S. Lewis believed is God's stories were true. And that's what I believe. And that's everything. Because I believe that there's a God that down through time, when his children get in trouble, that he's able to deliver them. But the next part is really important. Because sometimes the reality of life is, is there are some of his children that cry out in the flames, and he delivers them. There's others, according to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, that are sawed in two, that are burned in the flames, that are decapitated. It's a rugged, rugged history. And that's where the next part, it says, but if not, but if not, even if he does not, even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, what gives three young Jewish boys that kind of courage? What gives them that kind of courage is they know that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is there. Nebuchadnezzar hits the fan, throws him into the furnace. One of the most dramatic moments in all of the Old Testament. And suddenly, King Nebuchadnezzar's leaning down, and he goes, Man alive, I, I thought I could count. One, two, three. I remember when I was a little boy, my dad would say, one, two, three, four. And the one that was in the flames with them looked like, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, he uses the phrase, it looks like a supernatural divine being. He uses the phrase, the son of the gods. And so there's a big debate. From Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, he's just saying an angel came into the, into the furnace with them. In our circles, there's a lot of debate. In fact, some of you have even written me who was in the flame with them. And I want you to listen to me. When Nebuchadnezzar looked in that, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, it's just a supernatural being. But in the argument of Daniel, we've already learned about a stone cut out without hands. So that should alert us. There's God, and then he has a great deliverer right in the argument of the book. We don't know who this stone is yet. When we get to chapter 9, we're going to have the promise that God's going to send an anointed one. 
So in Daniel's argument, there is a strong promised one that's coming. When the Lord Jesus does come to earth, what does he tell us as his children? I will never leave you or forsake you. And the book of Isaiah, a hundred years before the book of Daniel was written, God promised through his servant Isaiah, when you go through the waters, I will be with you. And when you walk through the flames, you will not be harmed. So the presence of Yahweh, we call him the angel of Yahweh, is an angel of Yahweh that is often the book of Genesis at the very beginning of the story that's equated with the Lord. Right in the passage, it's the angel of Yahweh that you can see, and then there is the invisible God in the Old Testament narrative that you can't see. So before Jesus is born, Jesus is always the one that makes the invisible God visible. So I would hold, though I wouldn't go to the stake for it, I don't know for sure, but in the flow of the argument, I think if Daniel were here, he would say that the pre-incarnate Jesus, the Son of God, in the Old Testament there's this idea of a Son of God that is a growing picture, and I believe that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had that second person of the Trinity that makes the invisible God visible come and walk with them. You know what I do know for sure this morning? Some of you are walking through deep water this morning. You're not facing the fiery furnace, but you face furnaces. And the Lord Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. We all wonder, what would we do? Like when I was a little kid, I was told this story as we closed. My dad would, when he taught about a passage like this, he would talk about that in the early part of the communist era, Nikolai, Pastor Nikolai, got up and began to speak to an audience like you. And as Pastor Nikolai was speaking, suddenly in the back of this small group in this secret meeting, a Russian army officer walked in. And Nikolai began to go through his mind, what should I say? But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Communist Party declared that Lenin was divine, that the Communist Party was supreme, that there was not God. But Pastor Nikolai told that audience, there's the living God, and he sent his son into the world to die on the cross for our sins, and he launched into the gospel. And he shared that that Jesus that died on the cross so that we could be forgiven rose again from the dead. And he told that marvelous good news that all of you, many of you are committed to, and I trust all of you will enter into that commitment. And as Pastor Nikolai is giving the gospel, he knows at the end of that message, it's going to be intense interrogation. It's going to be really tough beatings. And he'll probably be gone from his family forever. But he kept preaching. Because his absolute loyalty needs to be to God, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not to Nebuchadnezzar, whether it's Lenin or Stalin or Hitler or any modern-day despot that tries to get your ultimate allegiance. When Nikolai got through preaching, Rather than arresting him, the officer had quietly sat down and he listened. And he began to bring food during the very tough days in Russia. And he preserved the Poisty family. 
It worked out that Nikolai, with his boy Earl and his wife and a ton of kids, were able to get out of Russia. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Because when I was a little boy, Earl Poisty, Nikolai's son, gave me my very first set of weights. He wasn't a really big guy, but I'll never forget, when I was about 10 years of age, he came and he walked in carrying this box. And when he handed it to me, I just dropped it. It was filled with weights. And after he gave me the weights, Earl sat down and said, Dave, I want to tell you about word of life in Russia. In 1947, Nikolai died a year after he started Word of Life heralding the gospel all over communist Russia. And when Nikolai died, his son Earl, that became my friend, took on that radio broadcast. And all the way through the Cold War, Earl Poisty, Nikolai's son, preached the same gospel his dad preached in that secret meeting. And so much so that when the communist walls came down, the body of Christ opened up again, and Earl, my friend, was able to go. And Earl preached all over what used to be the United Soviet Republic. So it happened back in Nebuchadnezzar's day. The Lord preserved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar praises their God and honors their God. We're going to find out it's just lip service, but he does for a time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have success. Some of you will have that. Earl Poisty and Nikolai Poisty had that deliverance. But if not, we're still not going to bow. Because the ultimate promise is that Jesus is going to set up a kingdom that will never end. And that's where there won't be any flames anymore. No more Nebuchadnezzars. Let's live for that day.